My guest today on the A-Game podcast is Michael Patrick Jan. Michael Patrick Jan is a writer, actor, director of many different shows, including the famous and one of my favorite, obviously, MTV's The State. He was uh, one of the original members of the 11 people there, which again, I know you guys have seen me interview a bunch of them. It's very interesting to hear the different takes and the different personalities, but this gentleman is a, a, a great testament to all the things that I push on this podcast. You'll hear a lot of the stories of uh, perseverance and self-doubt and just coming from a small town, going to New York City and uh, coming over struggles about how to present yourself, how to handle yourself. So we're gonna touch on a lot of different things during this that apply to life and to business and to whatever industries you're in to help you be a mature person and a better person and to handle situations and people better. And I think it's really awesome that you have such different personalities and different takes that came together with this group of 11 people and made this amazing show that stuck around for decades and they've collaborated together. And uh, I love and really have enjoyed learning. But this, if you are not uh, familiar with him, he also does a podcast now that's an outstanding podcast called Michael Patrick Jan Can't Direct Traffic. And although the focus of it is directing, the conversations are great. They talk about big names, big movies, big actors, big situations. They have really funny analogies. It's, it's, it's very entertaining. I highly recommend this podcast as well. You could check it out on his site in the show notes and on iTunes as well. But the synopsis for this episode, we are going to start talking a little bit about coming from a small town in Albany, uh, getting out of there, leaving and going to New York City, meeting the cast of the state, how we went to NYU, how that group came together. We'll touch on uh, Joe Latrulio and Thomas Lennon and how they all formed into becoming what eventually become, became the state. Um, what his background was, how he got into uh, directing, into entertainment, and how his family felt about that, how they pushed him or, or reacted to him going into show business, and what it was like growing up and being in your, your late teens, early 20s in New York City as a director on an MTV show with a bunch of friends running around when you know, you're, you're crazy, you have no supervision, you're, you're out there trying to find the world. So being young and, and successful with 11 of your friends in New York City where you know, it was the old school New York City with the drinking and, and the bars and, and how did you handle it and what did you do and what would you have done better? We talk a lot, a lot of parallels between life and business and you know, handling yourself. And we go over some situations that he talked about that you know, he thought coming in young, he, he had to be a little bit more of an asshole, a little bit more aggressive and opinionated. And a lot of the things that we talk about is how he wished somebody would have come up to him and given him advice that he's going to give during this podcast and during this interview that you should take into account because it rung very true to me about handling situations better or handling people better that you think you're doing well. And then somebody comes over to you and says, man, you, you didn't handle that well. You handled that like a jerk. You didn't have to talk to that person like that. You didn't have to fire off like that. You didn't have to react like that. And these to me are very, very valuable lessons. He talks about being passionate, being um, consistent with things, paying attention to things and the difference between working hard and being talented and being confident and how much of your success does have to do with who you know or how much of it just has to do with getting lucky and how do you handle that? We talk about how do you handle negativity? How do you handle self-doubt? Um, the, the, the ups and downs of business, especially the entertainment business, there's so many parallels to being an entrepreneur and being in the entertainment, trying to be a writer or a comedian or an actor or a musician, just a roller coaster of everything. And obviously, um, we talk about his projects. We talk about the similarities that drew him in to writing movies like Drop Dead Gorgeous, 
working on the project, Wayne, which if you guys have not seen Wayne, it is freaking awesome. Such a great show on Amazon Prime right now. So this episode does have something for everybody. If you're wondering if you should listen, no matter what your interest is, you can definitely take away a lot of key notes and key pieces on this, whether it's about business, about life, about people, about mindset, or just some fun things and stories about his castmates from the state and growing up in New York City. You will absolutely love this episode. It is brought to you in part by Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. Go to nicknicknick.com slash links. Click on our affiliates page. It will take you to William Brown and Navy SEAL owned, true tried and tested quality CBD products. No THC will not get you high. Go look around on that site and use it for 30 to 60 days consistently and you will feel a huge difference in your aches, in your pains, in your inflammation, your sleep, and your anxiety. It's helped me out with a ton of different things. When you go to check out, use promo code AGAME for 20% off any and all products on that site as well as go on nicknicknick.com and check out our free ebook, How the Coronavirus Has Affected the Real Estate Market and What Every Investor Needs to Know. You can get it for absolutely free on the site. It's a little bit of money on Amazon. So go through the site, get on there and figure out how we can invest in real estate together. Find me at nicknicknick.com slash links. And on there, you can connect with me on all platforms of social media. You can find my email and let's figure out, do you want to buy properties from me? Do you want to sell properties to me or do you want to partner up in JV on some deals, whether it's residential, commercial, cash flow properties, land development stuff, wholesaling, or just having a discussion of where you fit in and how we can work together. That will be the starting point. Let's do some business together. Thank you again, Michael Patrick Jan and everybody from the state. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. Michael Patrick Jan. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. All right, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast is actor, director, writer. He has directed The State, The Last Man Standing, Goldberg's, Children's Hospital, Ghosted, Powerless, Community, Reno 911, Children's Hospital, Drop Dead Gorgeous, and Reaper, among many others. He's the producer of Little Britain USA, Reno 911, and others, and also the writer of Let's Go to Prison. He is the host of the Can't Direct Traffic Podcast, husband, father of two, Founder of a very great beard and all-around funny guy, Michael Patrick Jan. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. I, I think you mean Last Man on Earth, not Last Man Standing. Oh, I did. I read it wrong. Yeah, Last Man on Earth. <laughs> Slightly I, different. Same difference. So I know you're in California right now. I'm actually in New York where you were born and raised from. So one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was just um, obviously your background, but coming from a town like uh, Albany, New York. I went to college there to SUNY Albany for about three or four years. So I'm very familiar with it. I grew up on Long Island, but then spent a lot of time there. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time downtown and I hear a lot of comedians and people talking about going back there and performing at the egg. And what was growing up in Albany like, and uh, how'd you make the transition out to California? Oh boy. Well, I mean, I, that's funny. You went to you went to SUNY. So while you were at SUNY Albany, like I was one of those people who you would have thought of as a townie. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, it's a very nice, uh, very small. You know, people. We, my friends and I, who grew up there, joke jokingly refer to it as Smallbany. 
Um, and it's just a very small city that doesn't have a whole heck of a lot going on and has never really established any sort of like cultural identity, even though I think it's tried a couple of times. <laughs> like there are no great bands that have come from Albany. There are no, there's no, no, there's, there's nothing, there's not much going on there. I mean, it's a nice place to raise kids. It's relatively, you know, safe. My family has lived there for generation upon generation. The most interesting thing there is that it probably has like, one of the great examples of, you know, Nazi inspired architecture in the United States, which is the Rockefeller uh, Plaza, um, you know, has a great like, soaring white marble buildings in a giant plaza with a reflecting pool. And when I was a little kid, I used to like roller skate around, but you could totally see it holding, you know, a rally, a sort of like a populist uh, demagogue rally as well. It's, it's quite, it's quite stirring, oh, but there's nothing to, there's, but it's quite, it's, you know, it's very passionately created and stuff like that, but there are no passions to stir in Albany. So it's, it's sort of like, it's just there, it's just there for little kids like me to roller skate on. <laughs> Did you make a lot of trips back and forth to uh, New York City when you were there as you were growing up? Not really when I was growing up. I think I'd only been there like twice, but I went to, then I went to college at NYU. I'd only been to the city two, two, maybe three times before I went to, before I actually moved there. But I think I knew growing up in Albany that I would be um, moving to New York City pretty quickly. And within about three days of having graduated high school, I left Albany. and that was the end of that. <laughs> I mean, I still go back to visit my mom. My mom lives there. My sister lives there. I have family there. And it's very, you know, it's nice. It's a nice, it's a nice place. And there are four seasons and it snows. And I, you know, remember as a kid thinking um, when I moved away, one of the great things as an 18 year old when I left town was like, I told myself, I was like, I will never shovel snow again. <laughs> Was, that goes through my mind very often. Even even now, you know, I uh, I travel around a lot, but since this has happened, I've been locked down a little bit between Chicago and New York, and I just keep looking at people posting pictures, and I'm like, man, right. just when I see snow, all I think about is my dad kicking me out of bed and making me go shovel. So it's it's very much not for me. But so growing up in uh, in Albany and then going out to go to NYU, did you always have an interest in in directing and producing and showbiz and comedy? Well, I really specifically wanted to direct. That was what I wanted to do ever since I was, I guess the first time I, I mean, I always really liked movies. My mom was raised by a single mom and she used to take me, we used to go to movies a lot because there wasn't a lot else to do. And sometimes we like go to the movies and go see, you know, back in the day when there weren't multiplexes, like it was a, you know, there'd be a theater and there'd maybe be two movies playing, you know, and not, 28 but we'd sort of like go and spend the whole day just like we'd watch the one movie then like go to just go across the thing and go see the other movie as well you know it was just something to do and then I was uh what happened was so I always like movies but what happened was is I went to um got a scholarship to go to like a sort of a prep school in town like um you know this school for the wealthier kids and it was you know college prep school and the first year that I was there I made one of my best friends was a guy who whose parents had houses on Nantucket, you know? So I went over the summer after my freshman year of high school to go visit the island of Nantucket. And I was sitting on their, you know, veranda with their other very wealthy friends and they were all having their cocktails. And it was like something out of a John Cheever book or something like that. And I started to talk to my friend's parents' friends about movies. And I talked and 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 talked. And finally they were like, you know, you should make movies that's what you should do. And I had never thought that that was something that you could do. That wasn't like a choice you could make. It wasn't like, you know, it was so far outside of my, 
you know, my reality. And I, but right there and there, I was like, yes, that's what I'll do. <laughs> no, it's really interesting that there's things that people say when we're growing up that stick with you and other things that go in and out and this stuff. <laughs> yeah, probably a lot of really sensible things that just go straight through. Yeah. And other things like you should be in showbiz or the things that like stick there like shrapnel. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's cool. How important do you think having that support from a young age was to you being successful in the business? I think it was pretty, pretty important. My mom was really supportive of me. For what reason? I could not tell you because it is not anything like what my family is like. My family's not a family of people who want to be even in the public eye really all that much. It's not, you know, people who work at the, my family comes from the post office or like the state government, you know, in, in Albany, civil servants, not, uh, not showbiz people. But my mom was never like batted an eye, never blinked, was always just like, oh, you want to go to film school? Great. And we just need to figure out a way to pay for it. You know, I had to get a scholarship and everything like that. But still, she was super supportive and everyone, I mean, no one ever, and I never thought, crazily enough like i never thought for two seconds like i wouldn't be able to do that and then it just all worked out i don't know i guess it's like they say like if you approach something as if it's going to happen you get the sort of like mysterious thousand hands that reach out to help you <laughs> do it as a kind of a new agey concept but still it's like i guess that's what happened you know i believe that i think that that's awesome you know touching on the movie theater thing you said um are you still a guy who really likes to go to the theaters and like that whole experience oh man i miss that so much I was just telling my wife that the other day because, you know, everybody's sort of, to whatever extent they're doing it, are locked down. And for me in particular, I one of my very favorite things to do, especially since I have had kids, is which has been for a while now, but is to once they're in school, go see like whatever the first movie that's playing during any particular day is. Like if you need to like clear your mind and you're just like, I don't want to go home and spin my wheels on whatever it is that's bothering me or get too bogged down and overthink things. So the best thing to do is go see a, a movie at like 10 in the morning, <laughs> you know? Um, <clears throat> and it really is a, a sort of like, it's, I'd stop short of saying it's exactly meditative, but it's certainly a kind of like a mindfulness exercise that gets you outside of yourself in a sense. You can really focus for me, really focus on somebody else's ideas, somebody else's drama, somebody else's pictures, somebody else's sound and get yourself out of your head and you can come out of that sort of feeling kind of refreshed and you still have the whole day in front of you, you know? Man, I'm so happy you said that. I feel the exact same way. And, you know, me being, we were talking before we started recording, I'm a real estate guy. So I've always been working my own hours and doing the entrepreneurial thing, which to me, the coolest thing has been when everybody else goes to work, I can go do things when they're empty. And one of my favorite things to do, which was weird at first, because I, I would travel and I would go to movies and it would be by myself. And at first I was like, this is awkward, but now it's one of the things I miss the most about this whole thing is just having an empty theater on like a Monday or Tuesday morning early and just me. And like, it resets me for the whole day. I, I, I agree. I absolutely love it. It's really one of the things I most miss about this whole thing and, and the way everything's uh, corresponding and checking out with COVID. Are, are, what are you doing with the, the at-home movies? Are you stable to, you know, have movie night and relive that experience with your kids? And I know it's not exactly the same, but there's some. Yeah. Sometimes it's the same. I have two. My kids are <clears throat> disparate in age. My son is 19 and my daughter is five. Wow. So um, they're, you know, at different places. So coming up with movie night that covers both ends of that spectrum is pretty, pretty difficult. Unless my son, you know, like we did, what was that Pixar movie that came out at the beginning of the uh, Onward? You know, that was a good one. Like that, everybody could watch and everybody was interested in watching it, but it's a little difficult. So, you know, like for instance, we watched a, uh, 
you know, two nights ago, <clears throat> my son and I watched 12 Angry Men, you know, the original one with Henry Fonda. But then the night before that, we watched uh, whatever that Netflix animated movie, Over the Moon, On the Moon, whatever that's called, the one with the moon queen and the two kids. That's, you know, we watched that. So, you know, I try to do it as much as I can, but also my 19 year old has his own life, even though his life is for the moment, even though he's technically in college, his college is actually this room that's right over that way <laughs> on his computer. Oh, walking around. Oh yeah, and the dog's up there. But, uh, so it's, diff it's difficult and I bought, for the quarantine, I bought an outdoor projector and a screen so that we could sit on a pretty big front lawn. So we sit outside, sometimes lay out like carpets and stuff like that, and be able to watch movies outside a little bit, uh, which has been fun. You know, my daughter got to watch Wonder Woman outside on the front lawn, which was pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Nice. So we're laying that into, um, you know, NYU. Now, obviously I, I can't have you on and not talk about the state. And I've, I've had a little more than half the cast on there now. And uh, I'll tell you, growing up, uh, two of my all-time favorite shows are Family Guy and The State. And I was telling a couple of other cast members that it's one of those shows that I've always just shoved down everybody's throat. When people were <laughs> yeah, okay. what do you want to do? I'm like, we're going to get wasted in my dorm room and I'm going to make you guys watch every episode of The State. And we would just be online, like trying to find them and stuff. And um, my one of my litmus tests was always like, if you don't think this is funny, then like we're just not going to be friends or we're not going to date or whatever it was that came over there. I've just, I've been a huge fan forever. And the fact that I get to watch, I mean, every year there's something that comes out that at least half of you guys are in or behind. And I'm, I'm just always a fan of it. It's always funny. And I've just followed you guys over the years. So it's been really cool for me to be able to do this and touch base. But I, I know you were uh, a lot behind on the director side of that more than in front of the camera and you and David, um, I think are responsible for directing more of that, but talk a little bit about how you got involved with the state once you got to NYU. Well, let's see. It was, uh, I mean, we kind of all knew each other almost right away. It was, uh, I mean, one of the nice things about NYU was they have a, the orientation for the School of the Arts is uh, different from the rest of the university. So everybody from Tisch, which is the art school, all the actors, all the writers, all the directors, film school, all the whole school shows up. I think it's like a week early before school starts and you're the only ones there, uh, you know, in the dorms. So like I met David probably within about 35 minutes of moving into my dorm, <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, uh, the guy, I got to be friends with the guy next door to me who said, oh, there's this guy over there who I heard was cool. Let's go hang out in his room. So we went hang out in his room. That was David and David, they're playing guitar and doing magic tricks, <laughs> you know, his thing. So I, we got to know each other right away. And, you know, probably a day later, I met Tom Lennon, you know, downstairs in the, um, like we both remember when we met pretty significantly because we were both downstairs in the uh, student lounge at our dorm that we were in and we were both smoking cigarettes. Uh, and we're like, oh, hey, we're both smoking. <laughs> and then it was like, you wanna play uh, Paperboy? And we're like, yeah, I was like, yeah, let's play Paperboy. So we played that, that old video game Paperboy that had yeah. the uh, BMX hand bike handles as a game. So that's how we met. We were play by playing Paperboy and smoking cigarettes in the student lounge. <laughs> that's awesome. I remember that game very well, throwing the papers at the front door and the dogs chasing yeah, right. stuff. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And then, you know, it, it just coalesced. And then, you know, we, everybody got to know each other. The group started, I didn't join the group at, at, the, at the beginning of it. And neither did David wasn't part of the group. I wasn't part of the group. Tom wasn't part of the group. David and Kevin weren't original, like 
first year members of the group, but everybody was doing their own thing. And I was making films with uh, Kevin and Joe Latrulio were in my, my gang sort of in film school. So we right from the beginning sort of bonded together and we're making all of our student films together. So everything that we did, you know, we were either both performing in or shooting or doing this, you know, whatever it is, we were all just sort of a gang who, and we all worked on each other's stuff and all got along and all had a sort of a common sensibility. And we all hung out in bars at the end of the day. And we were just sort of like, it was just such a, like a tight group of people. And eventually we all wound up in by hook or by crook. We all just wound up in the group by the end of our college years. And it was at that point that we started shooting more, um, <clears throat> shooting more video, shooting some film and stuff like that and making things that weren't just like live on stage. And it just, it just, I don't know, everything just happened. We got, we wound up at MTV pretty quickly. David and I were already working at MTV sort of as um, very, very low level. <laughs> like, uh, I think they called us producers in the news department, but it was more just like a thing where like, you know, for instance, I got for the, this is how long ago it was. There was a Rolling Stone magazine 25th anniversary special, and they had every cover of every Rolling Stone that had been published, and they wanted the guy who was making the special just handed them all to me and said, like, we need a treatment of all of these, and there needs to be a, there needs to be 10 second bumpers, 15 second bumpers, a two minute this, these are all the things, so just go do something. <laughs> so, you know, we would just go shoot and do, make, make little MTV, you know, montages of stuff. And you can see the, uh, <laughs> the fruits of that in the uh, credits, the opening credits to the state. Like that was definitely our, my, um, you know, new, my news montage training taking uh, to make that. Nice. But anyway, we all wound up in the same, that's how we, we just, it was just, we just were drawn to each other. It was just, there was just a certain gravity to it. It was just lucky, you know? Yeah, it seems like you guys all have, a, obviously, I've, I've talked to a bunch of you and everybody always shares the same mutual respect. And it seems like maybe not everybody at once, but the those little clicks happen very fast for all of you, that these two connected, these three connected, and then this one knew that one. And, um, you know, obviously you guys have stayed together for the years. So I, I feel like that's, you know, it's fate. Like you said, it's, it's those hands reaching out and making those things happen and putting those groups together, um, which I think is, is very interesting as well, because obviously – when I was in college, I was in upstate and, you know, we would go, you know, crazy and like party too much and stuff. I can't imagine being in early twenties, successful. One of your first like projects out of college or in college is a successful MTV show. And now you've got all these like 20 to 24 year old guys. And, you know, Kevin Allison told me stories about just getting hammered. And, you know, I've heard Thomas Lennon talking about going to down the hatch and stuff. Um, being in your early twenties and successful running around, New York City when it was like that. I mean, I, I, I lived on 47th and 7th for a while. So I was like half a block from where you guys were. And it, it was like living on a, a film studio. There was like midgets falling out of buildings and people painted from head to toe, like crazy stuff every day that they were filming something. What was it like growing up and being successful with a group like that at that time? Well, I think the thing that you're, I mean, it, it was, it was, I mean, it, it was certainly great. I mean, part of the, um, lack of self-doubt that led to the show was another part where it's like, once we got there, it wasn't like, Oh my God, this is so great. We're here. It was more like, yes, of course we're here. <laughs> so I don't, and I also think like the thing that you're talking about, the sort of like crazy times, like it's so not like, I don't know, like sunset strip 1977 or something like that. It was like, we drank a lot of beer. <laughs> you know, It was more like that kind of thing. I mean, I worked all the time. It wasn't like, 
you know, we would go out and drink and stuff like that in, in bars and we all were, were always together. And every, I mean, every night we were, we were probably out, you know, drinking, uh, but we were like drinking beer. It wasn't like nobody could afford any, like, it wasn't like anybody was doing, I mean, I don't know. I, certainly no, nobody in my end of the spectrum was doing any, like nobody's into like cocaine or anything like that or any like harder drugs. Cause it just, first of all, it just was impossible to even like, I couldn't afford that. I could barely afford to eat. Um, you know, we didn't make a lot of money on an MTV show. It was still, you know, up to the point where we had the MTV show. I specifically, and will admit that I was living partially on shoplifting. Um, I had a really big uh, coat, you know, like a trench coat that I used to wear all the time. And uh, I would just, you know, I'd go into a store and I'd go and I'd buy like ramen, you know, ramen bricks, because those were like 39 cents a piece. But I tried to take as much other stuff and like stuck it under my arm as I was going out. I'd have like, you know, steaks and like vegetables and stuff like jammed under my arms as going out. And I'm paying for, you know, paying for, you know, using like T-Rex arms to pay for my, um, <laughs> to pay for my, you know, a dollar fifty in ramen. Um, so it was, it wasn't so, it, it, it was, it wasn't crazy in the kind of like, you know, Molly crew <laughs> kind of way. It was more sort of like, it was, it was, it all revolved around work and it wasn't, it wasn't so bananas or anything like that. I also think that, that there's a pretty strong, you'll find this probably among a lot of creative people, but also among a lot of comedians, that there was a pretty strong, uh, I hate to say self-loathing, but that's kind of like what it was around everybody as well. So while we were all sort of comfortable with each other, like I was never comfortable around other people. It was, that was something I learned how to be later in life. But like, so it wasn't like I was hanging out with lots of like little ladies or anything like that. Cause I was like, oh, she'll hate that person would hate me. Like I still, I'm, I'm literally, there were probably, you couldn't introduce me to somebody that I wasn't like, oh, she's out of my league. It was like, really? The one with the peg leg and the patch on her? Right. It was just like, yeah, that, I don't just, I just don't feel like I'm, she wouldn't like me. <laughs> um, so it wasn't that, I mean, I guess it was, it was super fun and certainly better than lots of other things, but it, it's only really in retrospect that I think I recognize like, wow, we really could have taken more advantage of that <laughs> instead of like, instead of like, you know, making arrangements with Ben Grant to be like, what's the, we need to go to the, like the most out of the way, filthiest bar in Alphabet City and spend the next, you know, and spend all night there until we go to the next filthiest bar. We could have gone places that were like cool and met like, I don't know, they're not cool, but like more upscale or like, man, I don't know what we could have done, but we did. What we did is we played a lot of cruising USA and drank a lot of like Genesee. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to my college experience. Ramen noodles and uh, Milwaukee's best cases for two ninety nine was right. pretty yeah. much how we made it through four years. Yeah, as long as you put it in the freezer first, it kind of doesn't matter how cheap it is. The $2 six pack is totally palatable. You can drink as much Narragansett as you can fit in your freezer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, obviously I try and um, always find parallels for business and stuff because I find a lot of things are, are similar and they roll into each other a little bit. And one of the things that I've seen in the real estate side and the business side is the lack of leadership usually hurts everything from, um, you know, communication and, and egos and all kinds of things. And I think your group is really interesting because the more I talk to you guys, it seems like with, you know, 11 of you that young, all very confident, all very loud personalities, all having different ideas. How did you deal with that with no real, nobody really stepping up and taking leadership, but still being able to get through that. And I've heard different variations from people remembering it as being amazing to Joe Latrulio said, it was a complete disaster but obviously <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Well, that tells you all you need to know right there, right? (laughs) (laughs) What was your, how do you remember that being of trying to make that work and really, I mean, because there really wasn't any, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of structure initially. Yeah. I don't think, uh, well, there's no really, I I mean, it's kind of you say with so many people in the group, there isn't even really even one way to answer the question. For me, I was never interested that much in performing. So I didn't compete with everybody on that. Like I wasn't competing with people to be on screen. Like I liked that every once in a while would be like, especially if I'd written something, I'd be like, can I be in this? And I'd be like, of course you can. Just stop asking like that. It's pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) But I wasn't going to compete with, you know, I mean, I I didn't even, I didn't come to school to be an actor and I only wound up acting a little bit by default. Um, I, I can do it. Now I'm good at it, but I wasn't really at that time. So I had my own fiefdom as it were with directing things. And I was, uh, so I had my own area that I was good, that I was good at. And I was given a sort of like, I'm not going to say carte blanche because I was working with everybody. We were all working together, but I carried my end of it with enough sort of, um, you know, aplomb and authority that I didn't get questioned all that often. I just kind of did what I wanted to do. And I would have to convince our, you know, actual grown-up producer sometimes to do things, but also he was relying on me because, you know, director can make or break any piece of material in any production, really. So he was relying on me. They were relying on me. It was all, it worked out okay, but it, it, it both was great and it was a complete fucking disaster all at the same time. And I mean, the fact that Joe Latrulio said that is kind of funny because Joe is literally the nicest human being you've ever met in your life. Like there is nobody. And I mean, I swear to God, if you could find somebody to put in your podcast, who's like Joe Latrulio, I don't know. I just don't like him. Like nobody doesn't like Joe. (laughs) He's just the best. Um, So for him, (laughs) for him to say like, oh, it's a disaster. You can just imagine, you can imagine what it really was like. I mean, we used to argue, there was a lot of fighting, but it was also like, it was serious and not serious in a way. Like certainly I had very strong ideas about what I wanted to do. I could butt up against other people. It always got worked out. You know, Ken Marino and I in particular used to butt heads because we're both, I don't know, because, (laughs) just because. And, um, but it's, you know, but we're all still, we're all still great friends and have collaborated on many other things and we probably will collaborate in the future as well. You know? That's awesome. And Joe Latrulio was one of the easiest guys to talk to. He was oh so nice, yeah. so down to earth. Like I, <laughs> like a really sweet guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what lessons moving forward into your career did you take from that experience that carried over? Well, I, Well, I mean, I took a, a certain amount of fierceness <laughs> because it was a little bit of a, like, you know, you had, did have to, like I said, you did have to fight a little bit to get your, get your point across and get things done. So I certainly took that out of there, but I also brought that with me. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I just had to learn that there. Like I kind of brought that with me. In some ways I had to learn how to undo a lot of the habits that I learned in the state. Um, because when you work with a lot of people, it's not like everybody that you work with is not your brothers and sisters. Do you know what I mean? So you can fight amongst your brothers and sisters in a way that you can't among like actual civilized adults. (laughs) And I certainly made the mistake of being overly aggressive or being overly fierce. And I had to learn how to be maybe like a more respectful human being in the same way that like, even my my daughter who's five and is a lovely human being, but she can be a little like more fierce around her mom and me than she is around like her classmates or her teachers, you know what I mean? 
Like she's, he was like, oh, she's so sweet and she's so plot. She's so like amenable. And you're like, really? She is. <laughs> but you know, so you, I had, to le- I had to learn that everybody I worked with was, was not, you know, my best friend from college and was not going to forgive me for being a dick if I ever was one. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that's great advice. I need to, I need to remind myself of that a lot too. I've made that mistake and had those growing pains as well. Um, having a 19 year old son, obviously, I mean, you've done a, a ton of stuff. I barely scratched the surface when I did that initial intro that I, I basically ruined with the wrong name. Ruined <laughs> that's funny. Um, did, you, did he check out the state? Have you showed it to him? Yeah, he's seen some things. Um, he has seen a bunch of it, not all of it. Uh, I showed him like Porcupine Racetrack when he was young, younger, much younger, because I thought he would get a kick out of it, and he did. You know, and he's seen some things here and there. And I think he got a kick out of it. We did um, that uh, Zoom charity event that we organized like over this past summer, and he watched that and I think got a kick out of that. And he kind of sat in with me at the end of it, you know, while we were doing the auction and as did some of the other guys uh, and Carrie's son and I think Tom's son and some uh, other people, the other kids just came in and sat down because it was going on three hours. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, he's seen some of it. Um, I don't think, I think as it's probably just like anything else with, with your kids, like your kids don't care about what your work is like. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, I mean, I'm glad that he's liked some of it, but I don't think, and he's, you know, he's going to, he's, he's studying to be an actor. He's going to be an actor, but, Oh, cool. I don't think he, you know, it's not something we talk about. We don't talk about my work specifically. Anything that I've told him about has more had to do with just the idea of like what it's like to be an artist and in general and ways to conduct yourself and things to keep in mind, stuff like that, you know, as he's been learning to become a performer and actor over the years, you know, that's cool. Which is great. So gratifying to me to be able to speak to him on that level. It's nice. How great did it feel for all that money? I, I was on the Zoom with the State Reunion. There's actually a link on my um, on my podcast page to drive traffic there and hopefully support that as well. I got the T-shirt oh. up there. Oh, when cool. You- great. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. It, it was awesome. It was for a great cause. Did you guys expect that much? I mean, I, I saw people's faces kind of go like, I'll sell this, I'll sell this, 2000 <laughs> I know. It was ridiculous. It was so ridiculous. Well, we didn't know. I produ- more or less produced it along with Kevin Allison's you know, Kevin Allison does Risk, yes. the podcast Risk, and his producer from that helped me and produce this show as well. And she's a lovely person, JC Cassis, just shout out to her, she's terrific. And she has an album coming out, it's really good. But, um, so we produced it and we didn't know, you know, when you set up a Zoom seminar, you, you have to buy, you pay for it based on the number of audience members. So at first I was like, well, 500 seems right. Like, I can't imagine we're gonna get more than 500 people to do this, because we really, really threw it together kind of last minute. We'd been talking about doing it and hadn't done it. And finally, I don't know what it was. Finally, it was just like, okay, we're going to do this. And I had, in my mind, I was like, sent out an email to everybody. It was like, okay, I would like to do this. And, um, you know, I pitched the idea everybody was down with it. Let's maybe set the date for like, what about like a month or like six weeks from now? And it turned into like, well, I can't do this. This, you know, it's impossible to get everybody together. And it went from being maybe from six weeks from today to being five days from today. (laughs) You know, so it was like, okay. So we just figured out, you know, there's not going to be a long lead time. Who knows what's going to happen? So we, we started with only 500 people and it wound up being thousands, like thousands of people showed up to, to watch it. It was so great. And they, it was just really fun to know that, I don't know, it was fun to have, have uh, feel the excitement around it, even though we weren't in the same room with anybody. It wasn't quite like being in a theater, but there was so much excitement around it. 
And like you said, we did an auction of like memorabilia at the end to benefit the, the show was to benefit uh, immigrants relief fund and the, um, auction was to benefit NAACP. So we started auctioning things off and the prices people were paying for things were like, holy moly. You know, there was a, that sign, the, uh, just a, an etched, you know, acrylic office sign for booger, booger and farty butt, which was a dumb sketch from the show. It's not a dumb sketch. It's a pretty funny sketch really. But I remember having that made, you know, back in the nineties, and be and I've, little did I know someone was willing to pay like what does somebody pay for it? Somebody paid thousands of dollars for that thing. It was like it's literally worth five dollars. <laughs> but God bless them. Now they own the the official booger booger and farty butt plaque. You as you as seen on TV. And if I had known it was going to go for that much money, I probably would have made more of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's a testament to how much people actually love that show, even all these years later. You know, I mean, look, look at me. I got the, I don't know if you can see it there with the, I got this, the book. There you go. Oh, the book. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. The other book, you know, I'm on the, the Zoom. So people still love that to this day and are willing to pay a lot for that. What's the I other book? There's another book. Oh, the state by state with the state. I mean. yeah, oh, yeah. 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 That's a funny book. <laughs> Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. So moving on to some of your other stuff, I mean, you have so many things you've done different stuff on, um, specifically Powerless, I thought was a great idea that um, I wasn't aware of until recently, but I love the premise behind it. Um, I watched a lot of stuff you guys did on YouTube, a lot of the interviews for it. Have you always been a comic book fan? No, not particularly, but I'll also tell you, there's a sort of a, I don't know what it is that you've seen of Powerless. I directed a pilot, the pilot for that, and was an executive producer on the pilot. And it was, it really came out well and it tested super well and everybody really liked it and it got picked up and it's going to be a show on, uh, you know, the NBC bought it and was putting it on. And during the pre the writing process, the writer's room, as they were handing in scripts for whatever reason, there was, there became like an issue around what NBC wanted the show to be and what the pilot was, what the show was. And my friend Ben, who created the show and who lives like, you know, just down the street from me, um, they, they just couldn't get the they couldn't get creatively on the same page, so they sort of parted ways. And when they let Ben go from the show and hired, uh, it was Patrick and um, oh, for God's sakes, I'm blanking on his name, guy who wrote shit. My dad says <laughs> <laughs> that that guy and his and his writing partner Patrick Schumacher. Um, they hired them to retool it, and I was going to stay. I don't know. I just did. I didn't stay with the show. 
uh, because Ben is a very good friend of mine. And also I was sort of invested in what that idea of the show was. And so I left, I just did the pilot and they never aired the pilot that I did. I will go ahead and boast that the pilot that we did is way better than the show that they did. End of story. <laughs> That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it, but it was, um, but it was different. It was a different kind of show. It was a little more, emo- it was funny, but it was also emotionally focused in some ways. And, uh, the characters, I mean, all the actors were the same, but the characters were different and the premise was slightly different. Fair enough. And then, and then going from that to now talking about Drop Dead Gorgeous, um, is that, that was your first like feature full length, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I made that when I was quite young. Awesome. You know, and then, you know, I've seen you obviously have worked with a ton of talent on the state and Drop Dead Gorgeous. You had Ellen Barkin, uh, Denise Richards, Will Sasso, Amy Adams. There's a lot of big names on that that turned into very successful people. And I'm, I'm always interested from you working with so many successful people early on and being in this business for so many years. Is there anything you see as like a common trait or denominator in, I don't even want to say necessarily people that are talented because I'm sure there's people that are talented that don't stand the test of time and, and stay successful over time. But the people that are really stuck around for decades and decades, like, like you have, like, a lot of your castmates from the state has, what do you attribute that to after seeing so many people that have come through and made it and those that have not? <clears throat> I'd say, well, it's interesting. I don't know that there are lessons to, I don't know that there are generalities to draw. Or I don't know that there are a lot of lessons to say that like, you know, there's, I mean, there's some certain things you can say, like if you're dedicated to what you're doing and you're, uh, have a lot of confidence, a lot of times things just sometimes work out. I mean, so aside, I mean, that's just a case, but confidence isn't necessarily confidence. Isn't talent. It's like a different thing. In some ways, confidence can be the opposite. Talent. <laughs> like the talent a lot of times goes hand in hand with a lot of self doubt. Um, but confidence, confidence is one thing I think that is, is a common denominator on people who stick around for, for a long time where you get that confidence. I mean, that's up to every individual. I think that one thing that can be helpful in terms of, not just in terms of having your career be long, but also in terms of having your career be rewarding and worth it and having your job be more than just your job, but also to be sort of your vocation, your calling, um, is to focus on the idea of community in your work. Is that, you know, it's not about, is to try to wherever you go, focus on the idea of like creating a community, creating a sense of togetherness. Uh, we're all working together. I'm, we're not at loggerheads. I'm not over, you know, of trying to build those things. And that's something that it took me a while probably to look back on the state and say like, Oh, that was sort of our secret weapon. Like was the sense of community that we had with each other and still have, but looking to do that wherever you go in whatever new situation you find yourself in with whatever, um, you know, new collaborators you have, I think that that's probably one of the most fruitful things that you can do. And it's good for the work. It's good for your career, but mostly it's good for your life. (laughs) You know, it's good for you personally and for the people around you to think of it that way. You know, um, if you try to lone wolf it too much, or if you try to, if you look at people as your enemies, because I've gone through periods in my life when I've done that, it doesn't work out very well. And I don't mean it doesn't work out like, well, like you don't get results. You, You may or you may not but what you get is a fucked up life, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any personal things that went into that as far as, you know, I know it was about 
girls trying to get out of a small town. Did you feel like that a little bit with coming out of Albany and now winding up in LA and going from New York City? Was there oh. some similarities in that story? Yeah, with Drop Dead Gorgeous you're talking about. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that there are, I mean, that's it really was a, a bit a draw for me to it. Like I felt a lot of kinship, like I, where I come from, they don't have that accent, but it's not that different, <laughs> you know, from a lot from, from you, like you've been to Albany and you get outside of Albany and you're really, it's just like getting outside. Like Albany in a lot of ways, isn't even as, isn't even as like cosmopolitan as that because Minneapolis is like an awesome big city. And then you go outside of Minneapolis and then you get to where Drop Dead Gorgeous is. You know, it's in the, 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 the rural and the, the faraway places. Like outside of Albany, it's the same thing. So I felt a, a great kinship with what, it, what it's like to be that far outside the mainstream and to look, you know, at faraway things and be like, oh, that's where you, that's, that's where, to have the mindset that somewhere there's a magic portal that you're going to pass through and your life is going to be better <laughs> and things are going to be different and you will pass through the door. And when you're on the other side of the door, then you're on the other side of the door. It turns out that that's completely untrue. <laughs> Not a real thing, but you don't, you don't know that when you're a kid. So the movie is partially about that. And the other thing that the movie is very much about is the idea, sort of like you were saying, really on the question you were sort of asking, which is the idea of, and I wouldn't have had these words to describe it at that time, but it's definitely what, it, what I felt when the first time I read it is like, this is what I wanted to focus on in the movie was the idea of, the, of success being a false meritocracy. Like that the people who are the most successful are not necessarily the people with the most merit. <laughs> They're not the people that's like, you can do stuff, you can be hardworking, you can be virtuous, you can be all of those things, and it's just better for you to be fucking lucky. <laughs> um, you know, you should be talented, you should do all those things, do all those things, but those don't, those don't guarantee you anything. And being an asshole isn't going to stop you from being successful necessarily either. Like the movie is about the vagaries of, 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 of trying to achieve your dream. And like the idea somehow that your success is equated with your virtue is completely false and is, is, and, and is, an, is a, and is a, there is a particular American destruct, particularly destructive American myth. So when I came onto the movie, I mean, one of the reasons, like it's, it was a funny script, but you know, uh, when you describe the movie, you describe it as like, oh, there's the good girl, Amber and the bad girl, um, Becky, and they fight to see who's going to win the thing. Well, that's over on page 50. <laughs> like, like that's not really what the movie's about. The movie has to be about more than that. <clears throat> so it's about the, the sort of journey of someone either discovering that, that truth about success or truth about life or in Amber's sense, not really discovering because she just keeps getting fucking lucky. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think that's great. And exactly what you just said is really what I try and echo over and over again on this podcast with that exact thing of your virtues and your dreams and all those things. Like you could be the luckiest person or you could be, you know, you could have a, a background or you set yourself up for success and come from nothing. But whatever I see, whether it's music or acting or especially real estate and business, you know, there's assholes that are, are rich and the nicest people in the world that never make it and vice versa. And, you know, that that tenacity and that grit and just, you know, keeping on and learning those lessons is really huge in anything. And, you know, again, you guys, I don't think you, you made the joke initially of like, hey, we weren't just partying all the time in New York City. We worked hard. And, you know, I think anybody that's been successful in anything that understands what goes in to being successful in even one show or one thing, let alone, you know, 30 years of what you've been successful in doing, 
would ever doubt that you guys have an unbelievable work ethic. And I, I'm sure you have tons of tenacity for the stuff you do. And you have to have the, you know, the, the push to keep going on when there's rejection and self-doubt and insecurity and, you know, that tortured artist type of thing. And how do you deal with that on that, on that side of it and keep those negative? Oh, well, <laughs> it's terrible. It's fucking awful. So it's been so many years in therapy, Christ. Um, the, uh, I mean, it's true. It is a terrible business for rejection and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's, it's really, it, 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 I don't know what to say, like over the course of a long career, I've had so many like sort of like great moments and so many just like backbreaking moments. And what do you do? You just pick yourself up and go like so many great disappointments, so many, but so many, you know, balanced out with so many great things. My focus became when I was younger, when I was in my twenties, uh, really, you know, all my friends, I, my job was all my friends, what I do with all my friends. And I only really wanted to do, all I had was this ambition to be a director and a filmmaker you know, at that time, everything revolved around the job and like, nothing's going to stop me from doing the best fucking job ever. Even if I have to be a complete asshole, <laughs> which is a terrible thing. Terrible, like terrible. I wish someone had just gone like, you know, you don't have to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, as you got older and you started a family and had other things I was like, Oh, I also should have like a decent, like a life. I need to think about that too. Like, cause like just being like good at your job is not enough. Like it's not going to get you through. So working hard is good, but working hard on your own life is, is also part of it. Like it's all about application. And I think it's less about, I would like to maybe amend that and not say it's so much about working hard as much as working mindfully um, on things. And sometimes that requires, or it looks hard. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's not like the point is to be, is to, is to work with focus and, and, and intention on things and to, uh, align your actions with your, with your intentions and stuff and, 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 and really be aware of not only what you're doing, but be aware of like everything that's going on around you and everything that's going into it. I have this sort of metaphor that I sometimes, when I talk to students sometimes or directors about like um, when you are making, when you're on set and you're making something, I, I, I liken it to the idea of like Japanese um, calligraphy, East Asian calligraphy, which I've studied a little bit of. So as for instance, Here's an East Asian calligraphy brush, right? So part of the, if you were to study seriously East Asian calligraphy, if you were to be, try to become a master of that, the first thing that you would do for five years is you would paint one symbol and that's the symbol for the number one. The symbol for the number one is one line horizontally drawn across a page. So if you were going to be working with a master and he would be teaching you, that's all he would teach you for five years. So the idea being that it doesn't matter what, Part of the idea being, it doesn't matter what the complexity of what you're doing is. When you when you print this brush down, if you're doing it right, if you're working with, in the most mindful way possible and really paying attention to everything, everything that you are and everything that you are experiencing is going to go through this brush, out the tip of this thing, and hit the page. <laughs> and you as an artist then will look at that thing and you'll say like... Um, you'll be able to see your own bravado or your own insecurity or your false steps or your confidence or your lack of confidence. And you'll see it going through the brush into this line. And you can see as a, for instance, like here, right? Oh, I don't have an example, but here's an example of a work by a guy who's a master. 
tons of self-confidence and you can read tons of things into it. I have it over, I have it sitting over here. Now, if you saw any of my work <laughs> to dig out, you'd be like, oh, did somebody spill something on that page? <laughs> like I work as hard as I can, but you see a lot of the fact that I have not mastered the technique of this. Now, when I talk to students about directing, it's the same idea. Like when you are in, on a set and you're working, what you're doing is everything that's going to happen on that set and everything that you're going to bring to the set and everything that you're going to sort of conjure and manipulate and, and create in that environment is all going to come down to a point. And that point isn't the tip of a brush. That point is the tip is the cone of light that goes through the lens and touches the target inside the camera. What used to be a film plane. Now it's a target, but, but all that light, every single thing, all the emotion, all the struggle, all of the, uh, all of the good things and the, and the bad things together are all going to come in and they're going to hit the, and they're going to be present in whatever that thing is, is that you made right there. So you need to be cognizant about more than just like, I thought it should be blue, you know, all this sort of like technique. You want to have all that technique, but you also want to be cognizant of the larger community and the larger personal issues and the larger sort of like almost spiritual sense of like what's going on in the room is going to wind up there. So be aware of it because if you're, un whether you're aware of it or unaware of it, it's going in. <laughs> so be aware of it so you can work with it rather than against it. <laughs> Very mindful. I like how you put that together. I wouldn't have thought of it like that, but that's awesome. That's good. It's true. It's true in your life. Like the bigger, the larger, having the larger, you know, having a larger sense, trying to develop the largest sense of mindfulness about you and your, how you are in your environment, the most open windows in your, the room that you are, you know, is I think uh, is, is, is a great, is a good thing for any artist and probably and just for any person though, for really for any person. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice, life advice. You know, going back to like the title of the show, like the A-Game podcast, I really just love talking to people that no matter what they're doing, whether it's calligraphy or directing or, you know, mopping floors, they're bringing their best to whatever they're doing. And I feel like that's, that's you know, who cares what it is. If you're passionate about it, even if you're not, you bring your all to it. And that's where you people will respect that and they'll see that in you. And that's what leads on to the next thing and brings those opportunities. And other people that bring that A-game will start to, like you guys found each other so fast. I don't think that that was an accident. It's because you guys all have that similar trait. And, you know, obviously it's carried you through. You know, and you mentioned um, JC and she's been helping me a lot with getting you guys on the show and connecting. Oh, yeah, she, she's great. Awesome. You know, I initially connected with Kevin and she helped me out getting on the, the Zoom with the state. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about Ben Garant. She was like, I can't even get a hold of him, but I'm really interested in him too because Kevin Allison started going down. He's like, you have to hear his ghost stories. He's got all these supernatural. And I was like, yeah. Got to hear this stuff, but um, you know, speaking of ghost stories, segue like into that. I know you um, you did a little bit of something with Ghosted and also Reaper, which oh, yeah. I I know that's from a little bit a little bit, but a lot of my same friends that were really into the state, we talk about it still. I loved Reaper. I was yeah. hoping that like with everything going on and all these other stations picking stuff up, it would come back again. What was your involvement with that project? Uh, I did one episode of it, and I really I just did the uh, one uh, episode in the. I just believe it was in the second season. Um, but the, I, it was one of the first one hour shows that I did. And it was probably one of the first times that I was given the sort of like leeway to do something that wasn't necessarily just comedy. Like it was super fun to like be involved in creating the creatures and effects such as they were at that time. And, um, but it was just a really great group of people. Like, um, I especially like I've worked a bunch with Tyler, uh, Tyler Levine subsequent to, to that. And he's just a great guy. I mean, and Brett was, was wonderful. And, um, uh, you know, it's funny. Army hammer was on that 
show as well. And now he's sort of a bigger star, but at the time it was just like, oh, that's Army Hammer. Like Armand Hammer, Army Hammer? Like, yeah, he's like, six, I'm a pretty tall guy. So I'm six foot four and he's like the same height as me, but like beautiful, like just beautiful. Like just an absolutely, like he walks on set and you're just like, God damn it, you're good looking. Jesus, it's fucking hurting me to look at you directly. And he's like, was born like, born very wealthy, very good looking pretty good actor at the time of course it was like his first job ever and he's, he's you know huge now but i remember thinking at the time i was like god if i was not did not have my head screwed on straight i would fucking hate this guy <laughs> he's so damn he's got everything um but i really enjoyed it and i enjoyed working with tara and michelle who created the show as a matter of fact i did um uh, though i just did that one episode of reaper i did an episode of a short-lived show called um was it called Kevin probably saves the world. So I did an episode that featured a Reaper uh, reunion. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, that was a great, it was a cool show with uh, 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 Jason Ritter, who I had done another show with a long time ago on Fox. Um, so we knew each other and Tara and Michelle created, who created Reaper also created uh, Kevin probably saves the world. And they got me on for this one episode and they had Brett and Tyler come back and play uh, Sock and Sam, you know, and do a thing. So we got to do a nice little, a nice little reunion uh, there. Uh, a very, you know, super fun. Uh, anyway, they're all great people. And it was really, it was nice to be reunited with them. Like, God, it was 10 years later, maybe even 15. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I'm yeah. Curious, but stuff like that. So, you know, like the, the show got cut early but I was like, I have to know how it ends. So like I spend all this time looking at, and I finally found an interview that they did talk about how the show was gonna end. But when you're working on projects like that, do you know ahead of time, like if it gets cut off, like, do you, are you ever curious? Do you ever go to the writers and go, hey, how was this gonna go? Or where, where was this gonna end? I mean, or do you well, just the next one? You can, it depends. I mean, a lot of times in a particular episode, you've got more immediate fish to fry. And also if you go ask them, like they don't know how many, uh, seasons they're going to be on. Yeah, I guess it's a good point. Like, it's not like they're, they, no, no one has the, I mean, unless you're Game of Thrones, you don't get to say like, oh, we're going to stop at season eight. <laughs> you know, like, that's not how things work. Um, so while they may have some ideas about it, I also think that those ideas can evolve over time. And it's, it's, it's no point in putting, I wouldn't, I don't think, I think, uh, to be honest, if you went into a writer's room and asked that kind of stuff, you'd probably be putting them on a spot on the spot in a way that they may not appreciate. Fair enough. In some way, so it's sort of like, you know, cause you can tell like you, you, if you're a fan of the show and you see people at Comic-Con ask those questions, like people struggle to answer it cause they don't really have an answer. Like it's a terrible thing to realize that like they had no fucking idea what was gonna happen at the end of Lost, <laughs> <laughs> you know? You know, but you can't admit that, you know, when you're like, ah, oh, polar bears. <clears throat> yeah, we'll put polar bears on the island. It's great. And you're like, why? And they're like, You'll find out. <laughs> you will find out eventually. <laughs> You'll never guess. You know. Um, and then <laughs> that would be one of the. Most, anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. It was one, it was one of those things like when they got to the last episode of, of Lost, and I was like, wait a second. So the ultimate reason that everyone was on this island was so that guy in the white shirt could take a rock out of a hole, and then put the rock back in the hole, <laughs> and that fixed something. Like that was it. Like, I don't understand what happened. <laughs> is it hard to watch TV and, and movies and projects 
because you have that director hat on all the time? It's hard to watch comedy more than other things. I don't, I actually don't watch even, I don't watch a ton of comedy for that. Just because I, not like it's not in a bitter way, but it's just like, it's not super interesting to me. A lot of it, like it really, like something has to be really special about it for me to, for me to want to watch um, comedy. And then sometimes with uh, like super high end drama, so, I mean, super things that are really great are, are not difficult to watch, but things that are kind of like, like you remember like when first, like when premium cable series started to become a thing, um, like I didn't even have TV for a really long time. And what I got me back into watching television was I saw the pilot of Mad Men and I was like, oh my God, this is extraordinary. Like I, okay, fine. I'm getting television. <laughs> so I got TV and there was, you know, Mad Men and um, Breaking Bad and probably something else I'm forgetting, but some of those like first, like sort of like granddaddy a game, like, Holy cow, this is so good. Like cable's amazing. And then, the, then there was like a second wave of shows and I don't even remember what they were in Washington going like, that was not good. <laughs> like, like, like that was like, took all the freedom of those shows, but made a show that was kind of shitty or was just like, okay. You know what I mean? And that like, I can't sit through that. <laughs> like, like it's sort of like on the, there's, and now there's so much goddamn media. There's so many things to watch. It's sort of difficult to, it's difficult to um, commit the time when you could just move on after a couple episodes. Like I just binged watched with my wife, the Queen's Gambit, like last week in two days. And it was just like, oh, this is great. Like, and you just felt like you were like in good hands all the way through and knew where it was going, knew what kind of show it was right from the beginning and was like, and was surprising, both surprising and consistent. I really, I, like, I enjoyed that. I did too. I thought it was great. My uh, my business partner, who's um, she's done some directing and some different stuff for some of our business things and working on some different things. She's she's a big fan of yours. Um, she was uh, sending me stuff and questions for you, and um, she appreciated that movie too. But she she was asking some different things, and I'll pick her brain on it because I'm starting to always now want to learn more about stuff. So like, we'll be watching Deadpool. And all of a sudden, like the musical slow down and the bodies are like flying. And then there's some like ridiculous song playing. And I'm always like, okay, stop. I'm like, whose job is this? Is this director? Is this a producer? Like, I'm always trying to learn like the roles of who does what. So one of the questions you want me to ask, which I, I think I know the answer for is, what do you prefer? Do you prefer acting, writing, directing, or producing? Well, I mean, it's directing is the thing that I love to do. And I've done the other things acting I do for if someone asks me to and it's fun and I used to be not very good at it but now like I said now I'm actually pretty good at it <laughs> so if you ask me now like I can do a good job but um uh any of the producing I've done has been in the service of um directing and even any of the writing I've done has been in the service of trying to make something you know I want to make stuff and the person who as far as like you know the person who really make the person who can who makes the thing in my mind is supposed to be the director and you work with a writer, obviously in television, the writer is, is, is the king and is the showrunner. But the relationships that I've had with some, the best relationships I've had and the best work I've done in TV is usually come out of with uh, writers who I have a simpatico thing with or people who've been like, oh yeah, like here's the idea, but I know you're, you know, you take it and like make it awesome because we know where we're, you know, we're all on the same page with where we're going. So it's usually directing is my thing, you know. 
I think a lot of people don't realize the different roles that and the the importance of having a good director that, like you said, with a powerless, it can completely change the outcome of the show. It's such a big deal. Um, what was it initially about directing that got you like, what was it that stuck out that you were like, this is what I want to do? I don't know. I mean, I guess it was probably had something to do with. <clears throat> Jeez, I don't know. I mean, it was just like when I when you would hear about a movie. And who made the movie? It was the person who made the movie was the director, you know, it was, it was a film by, you know, or if you, you know, you would know the difference between a like, you know, when I grew up in the eighties of like, Oh, like that teen movie was directed by John Hughes. And that has a particular feel to it. You know what I mean? Like that has a particular thing, but this one was directed by Savage Steve Holland and that has a particular feel to it. Like the feeling of those things. And then you, know, you get into, you know, you go past, the movies that are actually intended for you as a teenager and you're all of a sudden watching like taxi driver you know, <laughs> or something like that. And you're like totally blown away by like, Whoa, like this is like a whole like other universe created out of somebody's like it's reality, but it's not reality. It's like somebody's, this is like the inside of somebody's brain on screen, you know? And that's the, that's the thing that uh, that's what a strong director is doing. You know, they're making, you know, like in, in, French movies, the director is the realizateur, you know, make it real. The person who makes the realization, you make the, make the, make the story, make the interior state real. Like that's what you're doing. You're taking a, a set of emotions and a set of ideas and you're turning them into a concrete thing that you can actually watch. I think that that's really cool. I love the creative side of that. I love all the, you know, watching it, like you said, getting a feel and knowing like, oh, this has like a, this type of feel to a movie. And I like his style and I, mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And again, you've been great with your time. I don't want to take too much of your, your day up. I just had a couple more quick questions. Um, one of them being, uh, I know you, you did a podcast. Um, I saw that the first season came out. I listened to a bunch of them. Have you always been really good with your interviewing skills? Because I really enjoyed the way that you had that conversation flow. Oh, well, thanks. That's very nice of you. I just did that as a sort of... Um... Um, well, it's sort of funny last year, I decided I was going to take some time off from working because my son was a senior in high school and I wanted to be around because a lot of my work was taking me out of town a lot. And I was spending a lot of time in like Vancouver and Albuquerque and such. And I just wanted to be home for when my son was applying to colleges. So uh, I took some time off, not knowing I would be taking most of the next year off because of a plague, <laughs> but <laughs> But I started doing this podcast because uh, I just wanted to do something. And I had been having fun sometimes speaking to groups of uh, aspiring directors, like at the DGA, younger kids or at, or at colleges and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, you know what? Like, I really like talking about this. It's not just doing it. Like, I, I, I feel like I have a, um, an affinity for it. You know, it, uh, I'm going to do this. So I just bought some podcasting equipment using airline miles and decided to uh, do it. But if anybody wants to do it, it's called Michael Patrick Jan Can't Direct Traffic. Episode six will be out next week, I think. Cool. Episode six is about Shakespeare movies. But, um, and it's very good. It's, I mean, it's a great episode. But um, uh, yeah, check it out. It's just something that um, I really, I enjoyed talking to people. And I think that, uh, I think like I say in the first episode of the podcast, it's like if you're, do, if you're doing a podcast about basketball, it'd be best for you to have the host be a point guard. <laughs> and that's why this is a podcast, mostly about directing from someone who knows how from the inside, you know, and really and appreciate it. Even like the, like the Thomas Lennon episode, the conversation is great. And the stuff that you guys go into 
about like the behind the scenes and the working with the different directors. It's really interesting. And obviously you have a phenomenal voice for, for broadcasting and stuff. You know, you, it's not easy. Like just to get on and ask questions. Like I do hours of preparation and, you know, I have to generally be interested in the guests and stuff. And obviously I've been a fan of you guys for years. So, you know, the fact that you, you were so smooth with it, I was like, man, this guy's a, a legit professional like you are with all your other stuff. So it, it does not surprise me. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. I'm, I'm, that's, that's nice. Cause it is, it's, that's definitely like, I don't make any money off that for sure. <laughs> that is what you would call a loss leader produced right here entirely in this room. <laughs> well, I will definitely link to it and uh, help, help promote it. Um, oh, last great. Thing, one of the, um, you know, you've done feature films, you've done sketches, you've done shorts. Um, I watched it. The waiters was the short. I think I was watching on YouTube. Oh my God. Yeah. Beardless on it. And you and I mm. and all the guys are, it's really funny. Um, is there much of a difference or a preference between, I mean, you're doing these short things and these feature films and how different is it doing things that are minutes long to things that are hours long? Well, hmm. I think in a lot of ways, I, I think, uh, I mean, I also did commercials for years too. Like there's a sort of like a long time where I was really doing very like high end international commercials. Um, so going from, so even shorter than sketches is commercials, you know, 30 second spots that you can spend millions of dollars on sometimes, or at least back in the day, I don't think people do that anymore, but back at that time in what used to be called the dot com era, <laughs> people had, you know, tons and tons of money to throw at stuff. Um, I think that the most, you know, it's all the same. It's mostly the same thing. It's being able to sort of like uh, um, feel your way through something, you know, uh, on a gut level, find what's, what's interesting or fascinating or funny about it, and then be able to communicate it to other people. It's the same no matter what format you're in. I think uh, kind of like I said before, as I've gotten older, the more important, the things that have become, it's nicer to have the longer, I like having the longer um, things to work on because of this sense of community that's built around them. And the sense of like, you build, you're able to build on top of things in a way. It's not just like starting over all the time, you know, every couple of weeks, I enjoy that. And I like, uh, I like the, you know, the relationships and the camaraderie and the, the creating relationships that push you, you're pushing each other as artists. Uh, is an important thing. So short, long, whatever, it's all the same. It's fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of short and attention span, you know, we're obviously in the age of social media. Um, what did you take? I know you're active on Twitter, but you, you mentioned the first it's time. It's so unfortunate, uh, but I am, yeah. <laughs> the first time I saw David Wayne, he was playing an instrument and doing magic tricks, and literally his Instagram is him doing magic tricks and playing and stuff like that. But I'm noticing more and more people, especially like kids, like now they, their focus is like a minute or seconds or as much as you can put on a TikTok. Um, what are you seeing? Is, is there any changes or adjustments you're seeing in, in having to direct things to hold people's attention because of that? Well, here's what I do think there is a difference, but I also think there's a way to play against that that's effective. Um, I... What was I just watching the other day? And it was something you wouldn't have thought too. Oh, I was watching an episode of The Crown or something like that. Something from the third episode of The Crown. I was watching how they were doing some, in this one particular episode, they were doing this kind of like upcut thing where they were cutting rather abruptly out of scenes before just as they were. So like there would be like, you know, 
tonally, the scene would be going along and be ramping up and here's the high point and here's the dramatic question. And there's about to be a, what you would ordinarily call, maybe like think of as like a ringing out note to end the scene. And instead of ringing it out, they would just get to the point where it'd start to ring out and they go Poof, and just cut it out. And I was like, oh, that's different. Cause they don't do that very often in this show. It's usually pretty, pretty standard stuff. And I know in my, in my own sense, and, but the point is, is like audiences get things so much quicker and there's a sort of, there's a kind of like a, it's, it's important to recognize that is that it's not so, I don't think it's so much the short attention span as much as it's the, everybody already knows the game. It's not like, like when star Wars first came out, nobody knew what the hero's journey was. Like nobody had heard of Joseph Campbell. <laughs> like nobody knew that plot line. Nobody was familiar with where that came from. And now everybody knows it. <laughs> like, so for instance, if you're going to tell the story and you're going to hang it on the hero's journey, you can't belabor the points anymore. Everybody's kind of like ahead of you. So you need to know where, where the audience is in the thought process. As soon as the audience is doing that thing that, you know, like, oh, I know what's going to happen next, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you need to be moving. You need to get, get out of it or you need to either get out of it or what you need to do. And I love doing this in some kinds of shows. Like there was a show that I worked on uh, last year, which is, oh, which is just coming out again. Cause it got picked up on um, Amazon. There's a show of Wayne on Amazon, which I directed two episodes of, and they're great episodes, but the show has a kind of like some of its roots, at least for me, visually we're in 70s cinema. So in 70s cinema, there's a sort of a premium on like creating the moments and letting them play. You know, whether it's like Robert Altman or like Jerry Schatzberg or uh, uh, even um, what's his name, Michael Cimino, like in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, like letting those things like letting uh, there be like a, a a sort of like a hit the resounding note. And then it almost turns into like <clears throat> instead of it going like letting it be a drone through the whole like the emotion drone through it. So. <clears throat> But knowing, so you get to the point where you can either sort of like, you can follow what you think is the right thing to do or what would be like the sustained note. You could get out of it early and surprise people, or you could hold on to it even longer and like make it deeper, like try to draw people in uh, with by like, oh, they're really like going with this, like they're really going to let like this character's anger is going to get deeper. There's going to be another revelation, like emotional revelation somewhere in this performance or in this visual that's coming up before they cut away to a different thing. But you have to be... Uh, mindful of the fact that the audience is much quicker to understand what you're doing. Like they're much more literate. You know what I mean? Like they understand where you're going with things by the way that you've, you know, it's sort of like every, in some ways, a lot of entertainment is a rhetorical question. Like I don't expect, like, you know what the answer is by the way the question was asked. <laughs> so the audience already, if the audience already knows how, like, Oh, you're asking the question this way, which means this is what's going to happen. Like you just need to be aware that they know that already. <laughs> That was one of the best answers to that question I've ever heard. Oh, <laughs> good. Now, you see, you're absolutely right. The way that, you know, you, you have to be a step ahead of the audience. And I feel like, you know, you watch some shows and you know where it's, it's exactly that. Like my partner, Nicole, who's, she's much smarter than me. She's always a step ahead because she's been in that seat. And that was part of what she looks at things like the Queen's Gambit and things like that in a different role, because she's like, I'm like, that was great. She's like, that was predictable. I knew it was going to happen by the second opening, you know? So I think you're right. And those are the things that grab her attention when she's like, that was good. I thought they were going here. They took this. They went a different direction. So I agree with that. And, you know, again, I, I went long. I apologize. I, I probably didn't get through half the questions. But um, in, in closing, I call this the victory lap as we kind of wrap things up here. And I let you go back about your day. Um, I, I'm very appreciative that you did this. Um, oh, no, it was really fun. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, big fan for years and, and I like all the stuff you're doing. Um, a couple of final questions. One of them obviously is what is your favorite sketch from the state? Oh, geez. I mean, I think my two favorite ones are Porcupine Racetrack um, for obvious reasons. That was just so great. I just loved it. <laughs> it was... There actually, I'm going to do, I'm going to say three. Porcupine Racetrack just because it got to, because I was super into the, all those musicals and those big sort of like what were called freed, freed unit musicals from MGM. Um, and being able to sort of like play in that visual, uh, in that language, play with that language uh, was awesome to me. It was so great. I just didn't, I could not, I never had more fun shooting anything than shooting that, even though it was difficult to do on the budget. But I also loved uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines which is the black was commercial parody just cause I, you know, was so excited to get to, well, when I mean, I star in that one and it's a, but also like get to do like the cool visuals at the beach and stuff. That was really interesting to me. There's a, there's a sketch called Manzel's, which I don't think that many people have seen because we did it for a pilot for CBS that, um, uh, didn't get picked up. It aired, but it didn't get picked up to a series, but that was a, a great, it's a fake nature documentary that um, if you ever, you could look it up probably, it's probably somewhere on the internet, it's called Manzel's. Also really funny. Oh, and another one called Choking, which I just really loved because it was a, it was just a very, uh, I just loved the choreography of it was very atypical of what we, of what else people were doing in sketch comedy at that time. Was Choking the one in the restaurant? With yeah. The, the, like, that was one of my favorite sketches. And then we're, what the hell does that mean? What the hell, is yeah, he what the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah, that one in particular, I remember shooting that one because I um because we shot that in Norwegian Cruise Lines on the same day. Um, and there's a bit out of the beach I lost, I actually lost my glasses and, and underwater while shooting Norwegian Cruise Lines. I had to spend the rest of the day without my glasses, and I'm very very bad eyesight. So I directed most of choking sitting in front of a monitor like this close you know, <laughs> uh, to be able to see it. You know, <laughs> all, all great sketches. Um, so another question is. Knowing what you know now in life and all the experiences you have, if you had a time machine, <laughs> Michael Patrick Jang came up and asked you for advice starting out, what advice would you give a younger you today? <sighs> I think that I would probably, the advice I would give myself is that your relationships are probably more important than your work. Um, or to prioritize them or to try to like meld, like having good relationships and good work can go hand in hand. Because I feel like for a lot of my life, I was, for various reasons that you could talk to my shrink about, it was pretty combative um, uh, about lots of things and was very insistent. And uh, I was sort of afraid of not having control of certain things. And I mean, it was born out of a fear of not having control of things, being out of control. And it took me many years to get past that and realize, oh no, you can create really good work without doing that. Like you can do it as a, you, you can, there's a, there's a, there's a gentler spirit you can bring as a creator to your work that is also um, fruitful and good work comes from it. That's great. I love that. And finally, how do people find you? What do you have going on present? What's coming out in the future? Um, talk and plug all things Michael Patrick Jim. Well, we talked about the podcast, which I'd love for people to hear just because I think it's really good, especially if you're a young filmmaker uh, or just enjoy talking about filmmaking. But if you're a young filmmaker, there's a lot to learn there. There are There'll be six episodes up by next week and um, talk to some great people about animation, 
uh, about independent movies, about Hollywood movies, people who are re real people who are doing doing really great work. So look it up, Michael Patrick Jan Can't Direct Traffic. I'm gonna have, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to talk about this, but I very soon am going to have a an audio production that's gonna be available on Audible that stars, um, I'm not sure I can talk about this. Hmm. It stars a major author. <laughs> it, I mean, it sort of has some major talent in it. It's a two-handed thing. And uh, uh, it'll be, yeah, and I think I'll be in trouble if I say what it is, but it's, it's going to be out soon. And there's a major science fiction author who stars in it. Cool. Um, and um, what else? What else did I go on? Oh, watch Wayne on Amazon. Because it just, they just, it was originally produced for YouTube, whatever the hell that was called. Like when they had their, they were producing original content and um, nobody ever saw it because they basically turned, like before we were done with the show, they said, oh, we're not doing that anymore. But it just got picked up on Amazon. It's really good show, really sharp writing. And the two episodes that I directed, which are the eighth and ninth one in the series are some, some of my favorite, some of my own favorite work of myself on my own. So that's all. Obviously, in the, when this comes out, I'm going to link everything in the show notes for all the stuff you did for your podcast, um, for your social media. So I'll definitely push all that. And I've been enjoying your podcast. So as my partner, we're big fans. So I'm definitely highly recommend it. I'll go give you a five star review and share as well. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Definitely, man. Hey, hey, it was really nice to be on your show. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. It was nice to talk to you. It was really fun. No, thank you for coming on. Thank you for being generous with your time. Thank you for all the entertainment and laughs you have given me <laughs> over the years. Um, You're welcome. Very well-spoken, very articulate, very intelligent, and very funny. And uh, I appreciate it. Any final thoughts before I let you go? No, I, I mean, I uh, 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 um, just like I said, to thank you for having me here. And, um, you know, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Oh, <laughs> and please, whatever you did to your hand, be careful. I will. I, I try my best. I get kind of uh, I'm very clumsy from time to time. But I'm <laughs> Okay. Thank you very much. I hope you and your family are safe and healthy out there. Enjoy California. Enjoy your day. And thank you very much. Michael Patrick Jan, you always bring your A-game. Thank you for being on today. Thank you, Nick. It was nice, nice to talk to you. Bye-bye.